Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trowel today. Uh, a big thank you to all of our fan members. We're very grateful for your monthly support and hope that you're enjoying that armory. I know new content's going up in there all the time for folks. Also, thank you to our FAC, that is our Founders Alliance Churches. Uh, if you're a pastor of a church, uh, consider leading your church to join the FAC. Uh, same deal, get access to the armory and all sorts of resources uh, that come out your way. So very grateful to those well, who help us out. We, we just recently put, uh, was it Summer Yeager's full interview yeah, in the armory? She loves she's, she's fun. She is so great. And, and she's really sharp. So that's one of the things. But I think we got uh, some more interviews that were came out of our efforts for By What Standard that didn't make it fully into the documentary. Full interviews. Yeah. Full interviews from By What Standard are going up in that armory. Uh, these days. So uh, also we have on founders.org along with various articles that we're posting, we just decided to set up a little virtual resolutions committee. <laughs> Since there's no no SBC annual meeting this year in Orlando that was canceled, which means there's no resolutions committee that's going well, to receive resolutions. There wasn't. there wasn't. But now there is. Founders has stepped into the gap. And we're going to have a virtual resolutions committee. Are we going to have like a virtual um, constitution? We might. We, virtual, we need one. Virtual, we actually need a real one. We can do like virtual <laughs> motions. Yeah. Can we do a virtual executive committee? Yeah. We need a virtual president. We need a, you know, all kind of virtual things. That's gets in trouble. What we've actually got, though, is a series of resolutions that have been submitted and being written by different folks on issues that Southern Baptists ought to give attention to. And Mark Coppinger, I guess we could call him like the Virtual Resolutions Committee chairman. Yeah, yeah, I think he's the chairman. <laughs> he's already I don't know whether served. he wants to be, but let's make him. <laughs> he has in reality served on that Resolutions Committee. So watch the uh, Founders website. We're going to be dropping these resolutions over the next couple of weeks and uh, invite your feedback. Yeah. If you'd like to sign on to any of them, you can do that. If you have questions about them, you want to make an amendment. Not sure how you do that. But anyway, you could try. You could send us an email. Let us know how you want to amend it. I see that hand. <laughs> um, also, um, Wield the Sword is in progress. So thank you for those yeah. who are supporting that project. After doing By What Standard, uh, we were really kind of defending against what we saw as a worldly ideology creeping into the church. And with By What Standard, we want to build. We want to show people uh, what it means when you actually live by the Bible. You don't just confess the Bible, but you actually live by it. And we've got Coppinger coming in with yeah. other people that are coming in to shoot some footage right now. Very soon. And it's going to be brilliant. We're going to do Mark Coppinger on aesthetics. I mean, so think <laughs> about that. What is a what does the Bible say about aesthetics and how do you go about doing aesthetics as a Christian? I'm super stoked about that. Let, let me give just a little bit of a preview of what to expect. Mark Coppinger has been hired to write articles on the aesthetics of four newly designed fonts by an artist in Copenhagen. Yeah. Oh. So can you imagine a guy like that talking about aesthetics from a biblical perspective? It's so good. Just a little preview. If you don't know Coppinger, he's great on this. But, you know, he's talking to me and he's like, you know, it's not just about it's not just about being pretty. Like an aesthetic, you know, it's something that just grips you. I mean, you know, I mean, sometimes it's gritty and sometimes it's earthy. It's not just about something that's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful, but you know how we use that term. And then he's like, he's like, even I mean, John the Baptist out there with the locust and the camel skin and, you know, the bony finger. I mean, there's something just <laughs> it's aesthetically uh, wonderful, you know, it grips you. I'm like, yes, you're, on You're aesthetics. the guy. That's you're what the I'm guy. talking about. Yeah. So, all right. Well, 
There has been a lot of talk about the case of Ahmad Arbery in the news and a lot of talk about that in the kind of reformed evangelical or evangelical world, even in the SBC. A lot of talk on social media as the video was released, I think it was last week. Yeah, it um, was. Yeah. So this event happened two in months February, ago? In February, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it happened back in February, but there wasn't a lot of movement on it. But when that uh, footage of the shooting of Ahmad was dropped last week, uh, there are... Uh, there's a lot of attention and people are saying, what do we do about this? So mm-hmm. uh, even if we track back all the way to uh, signing of the social justice statement, if we go back to uh, our stuff on by what standard, the whole point was by what standard do you seek justice? We've done a conference here, uh, you, me, Vody, others uh, on um, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God, where we continue to say we care very much about doing justice in the world. Yeah. Some of the way that um, some of our attempts have been painted to say, well, you don't care about justice. That's right. all. You're, no, we're saying what you have is you have two different definitions of justice. And so since we do care about it, we say, hey, let's take what we know about this case so far and let's talk about what, how, how does it relate to the Word of God and what's it going to look like to actually abide by the Word of God in real time in this particular situation? Yeah, the, the thing that, uh, I mean, first of all, man, what a tragedy. I mean, this is just horrible. I, I've not watched the video. I can't bring myself to watch people being murdered uh, in reality. And uh, so I, I haven't watched it, but I've read about it, and I've watched portions of it before mm. the actual uh, shooting. And it's just tragic. I mean, I pray for the family of this young man and uh, the family of the two guys that were involved in his death. I mean, any way you cut it, it's a tragedy. And so we ought to be deeply grieved over this. But also, we can't be moved off of what the Bible says about how we are to respond to such tragedies in the world. And quite honestly, you know, I mean, it doesn't help to just be emotional in your response and say, oh, well, this is just the way things are, and, and this proves X, Y, Z that we have already building in our mind as a narrative. Neither does it help to just say, oh, well, let's take an academic view of this, and let's just be theoretical and talking about what justice looks like. We live on the, on the street. I mean, we're in the real world, and, mm-hmm. and there's real blood on the street. And so the Bible needs to be applied to this situation as it really is. And at the outset, I think we ought to admit that we don't know everything. Mm. And the scripture tells us that if a person gives an answer before he hears a matter, he is a fool. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to be foolish in saying, oh, yeah, we know enough to make strong conclusions. But we do know enough to speak wisdom from scripture into it. That's what we want to try to yeah. do. I mean, even before we get into the details, I want to highlight what you said about being emotional with this. It's an emotional thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a, when you hear about a shooting, a murder, it's, um, it's devastating. And I know that's where a lot of Christians are. Many of the Christians that I've sure. talked to, they're just sad yeah. and, and rightfully so. But I'm concerned because many don't seem to know what to do or like where to go in the situation, right? So it's, you have the dynamic of black and white going on here and you're in Georgia. And so uh, immediately race is going to be imported into what happened and we'll get to uh, where that plays. Uh, I don't believe uh, race is irrelevant in every sense as it uh, mm-hmm. touches upon this situation. It is, but there are uh, situations, there are dynamics of what happened where race is entirely irrelevant. And those dynamics are actually more important than race. Yes, because justice is blind. She's yeah. blind. And yeah. so you, you know, 
I'll go ahead and go here now, but there is a difference between sins and crimes, right? So uh, pride is a sin, malice is a sin, and both of those sins, pride and malice, are related to racism. What is a racist? Well, it's a man who is given to pride based on his race. It's a man who's given to malice against other races and some kind of um, lack of any kind of malice or correction about his own race. So those things... um, are sins, but you can you can do that in your home and you, never you walk outside with us. You can be a flaming racist and not be a criminal and not be a criminal criminal. Yeah, and you can be a guy that goes out and does something that he shouldn't do with a shotgun, mm-hmm. even to someone of a different skin color, and not have a racist bone in your body and be a criminal. Yeah, and be a criminal. Now, once it's identified that you have done something that's criminal, there should be an investigation into the things like aggravated assault or things where there's you have murdered someone with malice in your heart, and it wasn't you know something that was an accident or something like that. So, once there has been a crime committed, let's explore what motivated the crime. So, that kind of thing. Would you say then that hate crimes are a good thing? Because I have a real problem with hate crimes. Yeah, well, it depends on. How it's being defined. Yeah. Like yeah. if you murder someone and there's malice in your heart over it, um, well, that's there, that's going to be different than if there was um, other we, kinds of motivations. And we have different degrees of murder and then manslaughter right. to distinguish how a life might be taken by another in an unrighteous way. And, and right. that's appropriate, I think. But, man, whenever you start trying to get into the motives of the heart uh, based upon definitions that are murky and shifting, Mm-hmm. Uh, which hate crime seems to do. Uh, I have a real problem with it because I don't know how you can be just and apply that righteously all the time. Right. Let, let, let's let's start with what what are the things we do know, mm-hmm. or at least the things that are in play for us to know. Because even you know we've all seen videos that haven't told the whole story, and right. we've all heard testimonies that haven't told told the whole story. But what are the things we know about this case? Let me sketch out what I know. You can fill in the gaps. Okay. But you know this Ahmad um, Arberry was uh, running down a street, and there is a father and a son named McMichaels, the McMichaels, uh, who somehow got information that. Ahmad, who was running, I think there's one report that the father, there's the father, McMichael, said he saw him running and uh, believed that he was a man who had committed previous um, burglaries in the neighborhood. And so he got his son, they got some guns, got in their truck, and began to go after Ahmad. Um, I believe there's reports that they tried to stop him once, and and then he somehow eluded them. And then they got up again and somehow tried to stop him a second time, and he eluded him. And then the report is they got up in front of him in, in the road where he was running, uh, parked their truck in front of him. The son got out of the truck and was standing in the road with a shotgun in his hand, looking back at Ahmad who's running toward him now. Ahmad's continuing on the same trajectory it seemed that he was on before. And then there's a car behind Ahmad that has a video camera out that's videotaping this thing. Or a phone. Uh, A a phone of some sort. So Ahmad runs up, and he doesn't run directly at the son McMichael, who has the shotgun, but runs around the truck, almost off the road, and then comes back around at the son and engages in contact with him. They begin to fight. And then the gun is shot um, allegedly by McMichael. I think that's pretty much proven, if not entirely proven, uh, in that 
scuffle times. they were having, three shots that kill Ahmad. Um, so there's more to the story, but that's a that's at least a general layout. Then there's questions about um, surveillance footage right. from a construction site. Yeah, yeah. There's there's two surveillance camera footages that I have watched. Uh, one is from a house across the street from the construction site the house that's under construction and one that's a camera inside the house that is under construction. And the, the camera from the house across the street shows a man that's dressed like Ahmad was dressed. I, I don't know that anybody can tell it's actually him who's walking down the street and goes into the construction site, walks into the house. And then after a few minutes comes out very rapidly and is running. And it looks like he's running at a fast pace away from the house. At that time, you, you can see a man that looks like he's on a cell phone under a tree across the street who the uh, reports are that at the time the 911 call was registered was when this man appears and Ahmad's running down the street. So they think he's probably the guy that made the 911 call. And then you can see just barely in that camera uh, two men getting in a white truck and mm-hmm. following after him. The, the video camera inside the construction site house shows what is clearly Ahmad uh, walking in, looking around. It's only like a nine or ten second uh, video. I guess it probably is motion activated. Uh, didn't take anything, didn't do anything. And so there is uh, some presumption that has come out that he was guilty of uh, burglarizing houses in that area over the last few weeks or guilty of burglarizing this construction site house mm-hmm. and that because of that the McMichaels felt justified in trying to stop him so right. that's that's all speculation but that's what's been reported as well there's a lot going on with the DA which I don't know if we'll have time to get into that but it is worth um, somebody exploring that but yeah. one of the things that came out in I believe it was the DA's statement is um a citation of Georgia law that talked about citizen's arrest, basically. And the Mm -hmm. language of that citizen's arrest is very important, at least for the practicality of what happened there in Georgia. And that language is that uh, you have to have, you have to have seen a crime or you have to have immediate knowledge of that crime. And immediate knowledge is an important word because if I see something or experience something myself, well, it's immediate, but, if I'm not there and you come to me and you tell me something happened, mm-hmm. even if it was right around the corner, if you're the one relaying the information to me, that li- that information is no longer immediate, but it is mediated right. through let, you. Let me read the statute out of the official code of Georgia law annotated. Uh, this is 17-4-60, uh, part of the code. It says, a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge, which is the point you were making, it goes on then and says, if the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. So in my mind, that's confusing because it it doesn't say that it has to be a felony uh, for you to, exercise your right as a private citizen to make a citizen's arrest if you have immediate knowledge of the crime being committed. Mm. But then it invokes the language of felony if the offender is trying to escape that you have the right, right. to arrest. So the, the the immediate knowledge is important, but then the knowledge that is immediate is important. What do you know? Uh-huh. And if we look at this case, I mean, the McMichaels could not know, I don't think, 
that Ahmad had committed a crime, much less a felony. They couldn't know that. So even if they see him in the construction site and then come running out, they don't have mm-hmm. direct knowledge of a crime being committed and certainly not of a felony being committed. Yeah. So on the on the Georgia statute, um, the McMichaels are in not in a good position. No, no, they're because, on they're on thin ice. Because you look what you've you've done when the statute itself, which was surprising to me that the DA would actually cite that statute while saying that there was no wrongdoing. I said this is this isn't good. Yeah. But if if we could show now let's talk about scripture, if we back it up even to scripture and start to think through what happened and how we understand the Bible, the the first thing that's clear to me is that Ahmad is um, being charged with burglary. So in, in all cases, by the McMichaels, by the McMichaels not charged in official sense. Th- th- right. that's, it's assumed that right. he had he had burglarized. Well, there's different types of crimes, right? You can you can allegedly be a murderer, or you could allegedly be a burglar. And um, Scripture is going to say that there's different. That those are two different things. They're breaking mm-hmm. two different uh, parts of God's law, and there are two different types of crimes being committed. So when it comes to burglary itself, one of the, the starting point is to look into Scripture and say, is there is there any uh, citation in Scripture, Old Testament or New, where a society is to execute a man for burglary? And the answer to that is no. Uh, Exodus chapter 22 and verse 2 is a very important place to go. It says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Now, the text is explained in different ways in different translations, but I think the general idea there is if a thief is coming uh, in the night, which was implied in the first, the sun had not risen on him. If he's coming at night, there's no blood guilt for for killing that man. Somebody like, breaks into your house, you don't know his intent. You don't, you don't know. know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But if it's merely a thief and he comes even during the day, which when we're so American, we're going to start to have questions about Castle texts law. like this. Yeah. But we have to say, if he's breaking in even in the day, now if he's breaking in with a knife, if he's breaking in with a gun, those things are different. But if he's breaking in during the day, if he's merely a thief, well, then... Uh, then that text is saying that you you are not justified in actually killing that man. the The general way we talk about this principle is that you're not you're not permitted to escalate a situation unjustly. The you punishment must fit the crime. The punishment must fit the crime, which throws us back to an important text that's often misunderstood. Exodus uh, twenty one in verse twenty four says, "But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life." Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and then the text goes on. Lex talionis. So the, in all of our modern movies and the way that we think about that, it's got this whole vengeful thing to it, mm-hmm. right? So you take me skin for skin. You know, I'm coming back at you with, with some kind of vengeance. But that's not what the text is doing. It's limiting what can be done. So if you come to me and you take my eye, I am not permitted to come take both of your eyes. Wait a minute. Does this mean that I cannot Bring a gun to a knife fight? You're not allowed to bring a gun with a knife <laughs> fight, which is just so... We watch too many, you know, Terminator movies or yeah. whatever. And it's not, it's not just movies. It's not just movies. I mean, we need to face up to the fact that our whole policing uh, efforts in the United States has been militarized beyond wisdom. Mm. And so there's this, uh, this approach with SWAT teams very often and, and other police exercises to use overwhelming force and we've seen this play out. Uh, you know, there's a popular series right now on Waco and what took place back in 1981 or two, or no, it's before that, 1970. 
Mm. No, it was, it was during the Clinton administration anyway when this happened. And uh, the, just the overwhelming militarization of that event, we've seen it with people who are arrested uh, in response to some of the allegations about the whole Russia gate and how they've come and just mm-hmm. surrounded the house and, and busted down doors or, you know, with bullhorns and such. And so this is going on in our culture. This is an in, uh, indication of how um, far away from justice and righteousness we have fallen, even in our efforts to uphold the law. Because yep. the law does say in that, that text, as you rightly said, it's not a warrant for vengeance. It is a warrant to restrain. Right. If you take my eye, I can't cut your head off and be just. Right. It's a terribly important text for us in like modern 21st century America because we are used to that. It's like, Absolutely. You know, it's like you're, you're going you're gonna to kill me, I'll kill your whole family. That's right. just the way we think, and it's, it's not permitted uh, by God's word. So the, the point is that, that principle, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that you're not allowed to escalate a situation applies to all of your life. It also will apply when you're in pursuit of someone. Yeah. So whether or not uh, you're justified in pursuit, you still need to abide by this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, that's pr- the problem with the uh, situation here with Ahmad is we don't see biblical warrant uh, or we don't see Georgia statute warrant for them to be in pursuit of Ahmad in the first place. But take it to a situation, a theoretical situation, where you see a crime committed. Like we're out and somebody runs up and snatches your wife's purse and takes off running. Or snatches the purse of the uh, office administrator at Grace Baptist Church. Yes. And then Jared <laughs> goes after him, as has happened here in yes. Cape Coral, Florida. That's right. And so, you tracked him down. And you call the police. Yes. And you gave direction to the police where to find him. Right. But you didn't go out with a gun and, you know, threaten him. You're right. I didn't. So we can make it that practical situation. We were here and um, Barb runs in my office, our front office. I'm sitting there, you know, studying. And she says, a man just came in and stole my purse. Now, she wasn't there. She stepped Mm -hmm. out. And um, this man comes in and he's riding a bicycle. Well, I did. I immediately called 911, and I go out and get in my car and go try to find him. And I pull up on him like 100 yards away, and I can see him riding his bike. And so I just stayed behind him on the phone with the police, and I said, this is where he's at, this is where he's at. And we had to track him for some time. Like I just kept staying back, Mm -hmm. and um, and the police did come up on him, and they found him, and he was charged with having stolen her purse. Um, But, you know, what, what's important there is when there's a crime, you, you, you need to think about these things beforehand because they're intense situations, uh, even something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, wisdom dictates that you don't escalate that situation beyond what was done. So um, it, it didn't go there with that situation with me, but it could theoretically. If we're chasing a guy that has stolen your wife's purse and he gets in a vehicle and it's starting to be a situation that's crazy that could result in his death, our death, somebody else's death, we have to say, you know what? It's a, a purse. A th- uh, having something stolen is different than someone getting murdered right. because of the situation. And we're just going to have to call off the pursuit. That's got to be regulating a person. And I, and I think, honestly, I believe there are a lot of conservative uh, Americans and conservative evangelical Christians who have been more shaped in their thinking about justice by Rambo and by the militarization of our police force that um, uh, would 
kind of stumble over that. And so they, they feel compelled. They feel like this is righteous. This man has done something wrong. And so I can do whatever right. I need to do to stop him. And the scripture doesn't allow that. Right. This is a point of discipleship that needs to be highlighted because pastors, we need to see this and help our people to recognize where they have been discipled wrongly mm-hmm. by a kind of uh, uh, attitude about you know guns and laws and righteousness that gives me the right to do things beyond what the Bible says. Right. Man, that is wrong-headed. we got to come back to Scripture and recognize that if we're going to use force beyond what is warranted, then we need to own the responsibility and be culpable right. for whatever crimes we commit. And the problem is, even in, I, we need to own this as the church. It's not just that the world has uh, discipled Christians, but the church has not discipled right, Christians. Exactly. And so even if you ask the question, do, do you execute a thief? I think people are, I mean, modern Americans are going to say no, but even did you in the scriptures, would the scripture warrant such a thing? Well, no. Well, does it warrant executing a murderer? Yes. And does that have implications for the way that you would pursue someone? If it wasn't a purse that was snatched, but you watch someone murder somebody in cold blood, that would change. That means your level of pursuit, eye for eye, um, is now at a different level than it was in the pursuit of of a burglar, mm-hmm. which is what really highlights this situation. Uh, because the problem with the, what happened with the um, with Ahmad and the McMichaels in Georgia is once there is a fight over a gun. If that's the only thing you have, two people fighting yeah. over a gun, no context whatsoever, well, they're both going to be warranted to defend life by taking yeah, the life of the other. So it's going to go, the problem is people are going to get mixed up on that. And you have to go back and say, who's responsible for that situation? And at the end of the day, that is going to be primarily, ultimately, the McMichaels at this point with the data that we have. Now, more data might come out, but... Right now, we see no biblical warrant for the pursuit of such a person, and we see no um, Georgia statute that would warrant the pursuit of such a person. So it's a very sad case. It's a tragic case, but that's at least a, a initial analysis of trying to take God's word and say, how do we think about this? Christians need to know, what, what are the biblical penalties for different crimes in, in, yeah. in the Old Testament? However you shake that down in the New Covenant, whatever kind of modifications, at least know and let that wisdom shape the way that you're going to live in the world and make sure you do that before the actual event comes upon you. Yeah, so I mean, assessing it, trying to think about it rightly, and then taking the Bible seriously to exercise caution and restraint, to not engage in folly by making absolute judgments. We know what happened. We know what ought to be done. We know who is guilty. We know what the punishment ought to be. That kind of grandstanding and virtue signaling, uh, it, it may play well on social media, but it doesn't play well in heaven. The scripture is very clear that the first to present his case seems right until another comes forward and questions it. And so we need to exercise restraint as Christians. And quite honestly, I'm pretty disgusted mm-hmm. with the way some Christians have taken this and are trying to use it on, on both sides, you know, on both sides. Those who say, man, look, this is just more uh, fodder for the race baiters. And this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to push an agenda. And on the other side is, oh, look, so-and-so didn't speak about this. He didn't tweet about this. You know, he doesn't care about black people. I mean, both those things are an abomination if we're going to take the word of God seriously. So how should we then respond? How, how should Christians treat one another? Well, recognize, okay, this is going to affect people differently. If I'm living in Georgia and I know that family who the young man was murdered, I'm going to be affected deeply in ways that isn't going to be true if I'm living in Alaska 
And even if I'm in Alaska, it affects me. And as a Christian, I ought to be concerned about that, Mm -hmm. but not in the same way. And so the guy who's living in Georgia shouldn't look at the guy living in Alaska and say, you've got to respond the same way I do. And all of us who own the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives need to acknowledge we are obligated to respond in the way the Scripture says. Right. And it doesn't matter how many people pat you on the back for the, the number of, of signals that you send out your virtuous uh, identity by. Right. You know, th- we're, we're governed by the Word of God. Yeah, and, and this is our obligation as Christians. We are to do justice, and we are to disciple the nation so that they understand what to do in these situations. I saw one, um, you know, people saying uh, justice for Ahmad, and, and that's fine. Amen. And, saying, and then other people, there's this, like, group that started saying justice for the, Mc, uh, for the McMichaels, right? And there was Amen. immediately a, a <laughs> renunciation of that. And I was thinking, you know, justice is justice. If you do justice in this situation, whatever it means, I mean, if it's, if you go execution, if you go, you know, in our system of imprisonment, but if you could find some restitution principle in scripture, that would be even better. But my point is, if you do justice, what's happening is everyone in the situation is getting justice. Mm-hmm. Even if that is uh, the, a person being executed for murdering somebody, that's justice for that person. And it's justice for this person. And so that was just an interesting signal in the way, uh, the way people seem to think about justice. Now, the work that Christians need to do to help people, you, if you adopt another approach to your life, another world, uh, worldview, you're not, you're going to start saying things that actually just don't line up with what happens when justice is done. Right. But that, and that's the whole problem with the social justice movement today is we've got in our minds based on our narrative, what justice looks like. And if that doesn't get accomplished, then it has been a miscarriage of justice. Forget what the Bible says. I mean, what you just laid out there, that's the way Christians ought to think is, yeah, God's the just one. God's the one who tells us to use equal weights and measures. God's the one who tells us that the punishment must fit the crime. And so if we're going to live that way, then, yeah, let's cry for justice. But I can't say I know what ought to be done. I know what Mm -hmm. happened. I know the conclusions ought to be reached. And if that doesn't happen, there's no justice. And that's what's going on in so many circles today. And it is undermining the very Bible on which many of these folks say that they stand on and that they believe. And I keep feeling um, responsibility for us to teach other people about these things. Because one of the problems is we, we haven't made that distinction between sins and crimes. And so we just start to prosecute civilly things that upset us things right. that hey, we see this going on all over the place some of this happened with the COVID-19 stuff where you, you know it's like there's a panic and then and then people start just drawing lines where there's no line you shouldn't be drawing a line there so we have to go back and say Christians have to understand uh, that they do live in the civil realm and that the word of God has something to say about that civil realm that you should be looking to the wisdom of God in the Word to know civilly what ought to be done. Say, well, that's a that's a sin, uh, that's a crime. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one, once we have, you know, I put it this way: if you uh, find, imagine, imagine a state that is just full fledged racist. So a whole bunch of white people there, ninety nine percent white people, and just imagine that every last one of them are racist, and there's one percent black people there. Um, well, what do you want to do to love those black people? Well, by the power of the gospel, the racism will be driven out of the heart uh, eventually. That's the power of the spirit, the power of God's word. As the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth, as the waters cover the sea, that state will be uh, will be worked, so all the racism will be gone. But since we're not there yet in that state, what do I want? I want just laws. 
I want just laws. I want people who really are full of arrogance in their heart because we have people in this in America of all various colors that are all full of arrogance in their heart. I want them to know that they they need to crucify that and they need to come to Christ and have it obliterated, but they are not permitted to allow it to manifest in a crime of of whatever kind because if it does then justice will be done yeah. in that situation and therefore Christians have to know when that crime is committed and what is the right thing to do in it and I, I am concerned it's an area that we've neglected and therefore other notions of justice uh, begin to take place yeah absolutely we're, we're overrun with that misunderstanding today you know there's another dimension of this too about discipleship I mean you've got a father and a son and evidently the father called on the son to engage in this pursuit of Ahmad. And the, the son is the one who brandished the shotgun. The son's the one who was wrestling with Ahmad when the shotgun went off and wound up uh, seeing Ahmad murdered um, or, or put to death by the shotgun blasts. Well, that's tragic, man. And here, here's a call to the church to disciple the members and to live in a way that shows the truth of God's word and the, the truth about righteousness and justice and mercy to the world. But it's also a call for families. It's a call for dads. And fathers, train your sons. Teach your sons the truth about what God says is right and wrong, what is good and bad, uh, what is true, what is false. And don't let them be discipled by the current media in the world, even by current current governmental approaches to crimes and punishment and justice, disciple them from the word, help them to realize what we just talked about, that you're not authorized to use any kind of methods or any amount of force for any injustice or any crime. Mm -hmm. You're not. The, The Bible speaks clearly about this. And if we're going to be men who train up our children in the ways of Christ, that we're going to have to take the Bible seriously on these kind of practical matters and train them, help them to see this is not right, it's not justified, this is right, this is justified. A whole other dimension of this that we hadn't talked about is, you know, uh, we don't know if there was a crime committed by Ahmad. Evidently there was not. There's no evidence that I've seen that he had not committed a crime. And yet very often there are crimes committed. We were talking before uh, this uh, recording about the Kitty Genovese case in 1964 in New York. And and some of the details of that have been debunked in the last few years. But that's how 911 uh, was originated. It came from that case because there were supposedly like 38 witnesses Mm. that did nothing as this woman's being brutally murdered over an hour or two in New York City. And psychologists began to analyze it and all and, and recognize there's no one number, no one central place you could call to get uh, the help from civil authorities in the case of a crime. And the bystander effect was uh, named from that. You just you, know, you don't want to get involved. You're thinking about implications. Well, again, okay, as Christians, no, we got to get involved. As Christians, if you see someone being abused, then you need to take responsibility for that. And the, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, man, you can't crossover on the other side of the street. The challenge for us today is we have so much access to so much around the world that in one sense we have to acknowledge, yeah, what goes on in Uganda, uh, that's my neighbor in Uganda, but I don't have proximity 
responsibility to a person in Uganda the same way I do to a person in Cape Coral, nor do I have proximity responsibility to a person in Georgia the way I do Mm -hmm. to a person in Florida. But nevertheless, we are to think rightly about it, and we are to engage. And so I would say, yeah, men especially, we are to uh, be defenders, we're to be protectors. If you see someone being abused, then you're to stand up that person. We need to train our kids of that. You see somebody being bullied, you stand up for that person. Mm-hmm. You do what's right and you, you suffer the consequences for doing what's right, but you got to understand what is right. Right. Yeah. And it's terribly important. And I think about my own sons, as you laid out that, that starts when they're very young. It starts, you know, you got to run the scenarios. And I mean, there's one, it's one thing to read scripture to your kids I mean, you start there, just read scripture, but then understand you're, you've got to help them apply it. And so right. what are you going to do if a bully comes up and starts attacking your younger brother, you know, situational ethics? I mean, here's a situation. Is there an adult around? Um, is it, is there actual physical contact or is he, you know, is he calling them names and what are you going to do in these various situations? And, and how courage relates to all of this. So moving away from the Ahmad case, um, you bring up this other case where the woman was, was crying out and nobody acted. Right. And men should have acted. Um, and they should have understood this is, a, this is a, by the nature of the cry, this is signaling to me something more than just burglary. Uh, mm-hmm. the, this is a matter of life, which is going to mean that I'm going to approach that situation differently. Yeah. But to, to rightly pursue and to rightly defend life takes courage. And then, uh, if you're doing that, not escalating the situation requires courage. Right. So it takes courage to defend life and to try to do what's right and to protect. And then it takes courage not to escalate it. And so what often happens is either you have people that don't have the courage to actually defend or you have people that, that enter and then they don't have the courage not to escalate and they'll paint that as courage. Well, don't I have the right to escalate this because now my life's on the line? Well, by putting yourself in that situation, uh, it takes courage to exercise restraint and be willing to ultimately it's being willing to die. It's being willing to lose your life in the same way that Christ did. All of this comes right back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is one who looked at the situation and it wasn't what it ought to be and people were under condemnation they're going to die and what does he do he comes into that situation and he lays down his own life he sacrifices himself I'm not saying that you don't have the right to protect your life I'm not saying that when these certain kind of situations happen what I'm saying is that Christian courage is willing to it helps you to exercise that proper restraint in these kinds of situations because you know I know the Lord Jesus Christ I follow him he sacrificed himself for me and I am here and I'm willing to do what it takes to protect life and to not fall into uh, sinful patterns or not to uh, leave off scripture even in these very difficult situations yeah which means that we cannot vent rage in a way that feels good to us even in the face of horrific crime you know we've got to recognize remember we're under the lordship of Christ he's not treated us the way that we deserve to be treated, and we should operate on the basis of what he has revealed. So, yeah, engage with courage. Be willing to lay down your life the way he laid down his life for us, but don't be willing to satisfy bloodlust. Don't be willing to engage in the kind of vengeful response that rages in our hearts when these kind of things happen. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trial today, and we hope that uh, this is helpful as uh, especially the evangelical world, SBC, Reformed Evangelicals, uh, deal with what has gone on. Uh, pray for Ahmad's family. 
Ask God to be merciful to them, to comfort them. Uh, Pray for the McWilliams, for both of them and their families as well. Pray that those who are civil magistrates who are going to be dealing with this, uh, those in the court system, that they would have wisdom, uh, that Christ would be made known through this. And pray for the church, for Christians, to take this opportunity to say, uh, what does God require of us? What does it really look like to do justice and to uh, walk humbly with God and, and all of this to express the kindness that we have received from Almighty God as we are salt and light in a very dark world. Yeah.